So welcome everyone. It is so nice to have you with us again for another Saturday night. No, it's not Saturday night. It's Sunday night chat. Nice to see you. Good to see you in the chat. Hey, are you new? Is anyone new? We're just saying how so many people are joining us lately. We're getting tons and tons of people joining us at Voices of Freedom. Are the New Zealand Doctors SOS getting heaps of people too at the moment? I bet you've... There's more. I mean, I don't know what the numbers are, but um, yeah, apparently there's lots of activity. A lot of things going on there. A lot of things. Lots of, lots of posts and uh, yeah. know, I've got seven, um, seven responses up. Or will by tomorrow anyway. Wicked. And um, I was, I heard that a couple of great new doctors have joined you too recently, some uh, new faces. Yeah. So yeah, it's really good. People are, and some of them, you know, they've had some pretty about turns in their career. So that's really interesting. Yeah. New Zealand doctors, NZD SOS is great, says Caroline. And they are, it's good. It's like, we're all getting, um, we're getting quite a nice little uh, group going in New Zealand that kind of everybody has a, a role to play now. It's, it's, but it's really good. It is for, for uh, purposes that's nzdsos.com, not yes. .co.nz. No. Just watch the propaganda someone's saying on the Sunday program. The public have been brainwashed. Oh, it's tricky, right? It's a tricky thing, all of this. How long is the wait list for the clinic? I don't know. We'll talk a bit about the clinic another day, I think, Peter, won't we, when we have a little bit more to say about it, do you think? Yeah, there's, there's, there's quite an accumulated... Um, you know, inquiries on that side about um, you know, assistance and yeah. you know, any any appeal we can make to docs in the various regions to, to be available. Yeah. It's a relatively um, you know confidential when it's gone through the NZDSOS. Mm. Everything's done to try to minimize any more public exposure to this, folks. But, you know, I think it's got to be true that more and more docs sort of know what's going on, but they just have varying degrees of willingness to be ready to become more vocal and more visible mm -hmm. about it. It's mm -hmm. really kind of that's that's the fear pattern that's been placed upon us. Yeah, and it's not just the doctors too. I was hearing today from uh, someone who was saying her friend is uh, works in testing, the testing arena, and, and they're aware of the cycles and the problems, and, and they're just really, really concerned about what to do, how to do it. You know, it's an awful lot to, to take on, but I mean, we are, we're sort of at the line now, aren't we? So it's a good time to talk out if people want to speak out. There are quite a few of us out here now. It's certainly easier mm -hmm. than it was six months ago, that's for sure. Um, you, have to be, you have to be aware that, uh, you know, the more that, we come out, the more that we become more visible, mm -hmm. there'll be a slight stepping back of the demands. Then we sit, we sit down, we just sort of say, oh, okay, we're having an effect. Then they push more. Yeah. And that's it, the sort of a, it's just the sort of thing that happens again and again and again. It's, mm -hmm. but their direction is unchanged. It's just the pace mm -hmm. as to you know, what, what they go for. Um, okay, everybody, I am going to, um, get on with the show and there's 1300 of us in the house people are still going to join us and come in the door it's really great to have Peter with us again for another Sunday night chat now for those of you who are new to the whole Voices for Freedom thing I'm Libby so I'm one of the three co-founders for Voices of Freedom there are two other fabulous women who are pop up all the time as well but Peter and I take the Sunday night slot so you, you've got me tonight and um, you can find us over at voicesforfreedom.co.nz. I'm sure you know that, seeing as you're here now. But 
Uh, we've been around since the end of last year. And these webinars that we've been running have been going a lot. We've been doing Monday nights for a long time, but since the beginning of this August lockdown, we've been doing a lot more. So you can catch us often several times a week at the moment doing these webinars. And Peter joins us every second Sunday and he alternates with Jazz Preet, who does a fabulous um, webinar on the alternate Sunday as well. So Sundays are always on. It's, it's a good time to come and feel some sanity in the world. But I wanted to introduce uh, Peter uh, because he's pretty fabulous and we're so thrilled that he joined us every Sunday. Um, Peter completed med medical school in Massachusetts in 1976, completing training as a general medical specialist at the University of Michigan, specialist training in respiratory and intensive care at the University of North Carolina, and practiced his specialty in Colorado for 12 years. He changed career and completed training as a radiologist at the University of Wisconsin in 1997. After an eight-year appointment as an assistant professor of radiology at Creighton University Medical School in Nebraska, he spent time in community radiology practices before settling in New Zealand in 2013 as a DHB consultant radiologist, and he's recently retired. And thank you so much, Peter. It's always great to have you here. Um, Peter prepares a fabulous uh, slideshow, so I'm just going to let him take it away and tell us what's on tonight. Right, so this is the fifth episode in these fireside chats. We've been doing this since the uh, end of um, August. Uh, and um, uh, it's just hopefully a, a matter of bringing up to date on what the most recent news has been, at least in the two weeks and to the past in the meantime. But this theme comes back from the 1930s when President Roosevelt, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, would give these radio talks at that time during a period of great depression during the economic times, the hard times of the 1930s. And it was intended to try to make some sense, or at least to communicate with the people directly. And that's what I'm hoping I'm doing. We're in difficult times to be sure. And I guess that's where this theme has made some sense. So again, as always, the topics and references, assumptions, research, and conclusions are my own. They do not represent the views or conclusions of Voices for Freedom or the Ministry of Health or any other organization. And nothing in this presentation is intended to diagnose, advise how to diagnose, treat, or cure COVID-19 or any other disease that we're going to talk about. And again, we have these claims, once again, as always, that we are anti-vaxxers, but that's really not what this is about. This really is yet another form of misinformation. We are not and do not wish to promote anti-vaxxer sentiment per se. We do wish to look at information and opinions which are going to be referenced in the medical literature and science journals when possible that have been missing in the one-sided offerings from the official sources. And so what we really are trying to do is provide missing information rather than misinformation. Now I have in my previous career in respiratory and critical care medicine, I prescribed lots of vaccines. You know, my kids have had them and I've had them and so on. So when, the, when there is individual decision-making, which is done face-to-face -face with healthcare practitioners, with doctors and others, then there is the capacity to have uh, a, a reasonable and complete and comprehensive decision-making process between physician and patient regarding risks and benefits of any vaccination, and this is no exception. Now, there is some background here for those who are new. I did start this uh, presentation, which was the thing that got all this started. I was going around and 
it's actually 17 venues, mostly on the North Island, some on the South Island, in the months of June, July, and August. And then this all came to an abrupt halt with the first uh, of the lockdowns of this year, back in August. So we did a webinar presentation, which is now recorded here from 19th of, of August. So it's about two hours. It's lengthy, but complete, I hope. Looks at really the background of vaccines, what they are generally, what's different about these statistics, um, how the vaccines made it, made and, and various things like that. Anyway, that's sort of you know the basis for a lot of this where people are new and they want to have some basis for where to start. Now that said, really the expert on this is Dr. Peter McCullough and he was interviewed here about a month ago on, uh, on Voices and that's the definitive place to go for someone who's highly experienced, highly respected and uh, well-known in his field and has uh, a, an extensive experience with actually treating COVID-19 in the United States. So here's a few of the last uh, four of the um, fireside chats and just some of the topics discussed for those who may be interested. So here we are today, and I think what's of interest has been this ongoing discussion about where did this SARS-CoV-2 virus come from? Uh, we've been told in the past that, oh yes, it was actually related to this bat coronaviruses and somehow it jumped species, which doesn't usually happen. And then we're supposed to believe that that's how it got into the wet market and all of that. There has been quite a controversy, especially in the US, between Dr. Fauci, who is the head of the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Disease, it turned out that he was responsible for funding this so-called gain-of-function research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Now, that means that you are looking at making existing viruses more deadly, they tell us, because they want to be ready with a vaccine in case that should happen to occur. But mm, that's actually a bit of interest when you also realize that some of the military um, uh, departments of the US were also involved in some of that research by interest, if not in funding, at least uh, that they had some interest in that as well. So under um, cross-examination in the United States Congress, uh, Fauci was in fact repeatedly accused of lying to the US Congress, which is a felony uh, when he was in, uh, very much um, uh, peppered with questions by Dr. Senator Rand Paul, who's an ophthalmologist by training and knowledgeable about the background in medicine generally. So it turns out that, you know, he referred Dr. Uh, Rand Paul, the Senator Rand Paul referred this case to the Department of Justice for criminal felony investigation. But of course, it turns out that the attorney general of the U.S. is from the majority political party and can just ignore it or deny it. And that remains to be seen what's going to happen with that. But there has been this email trail which suggested that, in fact, the funding uh, via this sort of private company, Echo Health Allowance, was heavily redacted. So a lot of the facts you couldn't have. But now we have a letter from the uh, administrator um, investigator within the National Institutes of Health sending a letter to uh, the um, uh, to the authorities uh, that are uh, looking at the uh, oversight committee uh, at the US House of Representatives, that indeed Dr. Collins, who is my former colleague in training at the University of North Carolina, and Dr. Fauci did actually fund this gain of function research. So that's the smoking gun, that's been out there. We'll see what happens. 
So here we are uh, looking at the contracts again between Pfizer and the various countries. Now we have some interest evidence here that was discussed here in the Daily Mail a few uh, weeks ago uh, about uh, how Pfizer arranged to supply their, uh, uh, their preparation uh, to Australia. Uh, they looked at what they expected to be the cost this was based on U.S. and European Union prices. Therefore, the predicted bill for Australia's first 10 million doses would have been about 250 million New Zealand, about 240 Australian. But the catch here is that um, even if the Pfizer vaccine didn't work or if it didn't pass muster, now we're going back a few months, if it didn't pass uh, muster with the Therapeutic Goods Association in Australia, they still have to come up with $120 million, even if they never used it. Okay, that was one of the components of that contract in Australia. There's no reason to believe that it would be any different in New Zealand. And so here we have a program which is now uh, running to 1.4 billion New Zealand dollar for this program over the next two years, two vaccine doses, all of the administrative costs, uh, the uh, uh, provision for their Pacific neighbors, according to Mr. Hipkins. Uh, and again, provisional approval, not full approval. This is what is in the US will be called emergency use authorization, which has various limitations. You're not supposed to be able to mandate a, a preparation which is under emergency use authorization in the United States. And again, the same was, would have been true in New Zealand regarding this provisional approval, except that the parliament decided to change the laws and update the, uh, the act of 1990 to just say, oh, that's fine. It's provisional, hasn't been tested. You've still got 58 conditions that haven't completely been met, but that's just fine. So that's where we are. Additional vaccines staying safe and effective can be deferred for later use and further donated to support regional recovery. So where are we in the vaccine approval status um, with respect to MedSafe? Now we have, of course, we all know we're, we're under this, um, uh, this, shall we say, encouragement to take the Pfizer commonality product, uh, which has been approved under the section 23 provisional. Um, and they had 58 conditions. 14 of these have actually been completed. Uh, the remainder are under review, including those with respect to safety for Pregnant, female, pregnant women and for breastfeeding and for children, which hasn't yet been, at least is not available to us as to what those review conditions have, have stated uh, and to what those answers from Pfizer have amounted to. So that's another matter where we aren't exactly uh, seeing some transparency. Now, these other vaccines, the Janssen, AstraZeneca, Oxford, all of which are used overseas are not uh, are they approved uh, for use, but we just don't, uh, we're not using them. As always, we have this still this question of the Novavax. We come back to that because it does not use the vector DNA product or the messenger RNA coding to make spike protein on our own human cells. And therefore it's different from all of the other ones. Uh, it uses a lipid nanoparticle, which is proprietary to Novavax. It uses an adjuvant for which there's quite a bit of uh, experience in the past. Um, and in fact, there's been some uh, <coughs> studies that have shown that it's been really quite promising. 
And it is a two-dose regimen, again, three weeks apart. It uses moth cells in the preparation and the production process, not the aborted human fetal cells, which are used in all of the other products. So it demonstrates antibody production and cellular immunity using CD4 plus TH1 receptor. These are important elements of producing an immune response. And indeed, it has been effective, shown efficacy against the original strain, the Wuhan strain, as well as several of the variant strains, including the UK or the alpha variant, the South African or beta variant, and also against the now predominant Delta variant, which originated in India. And so it's shown that efficacy in trials when used as a booster for the other vaccines uh, and also in uh, a primary uh, vaccination in these macaque monkeys, which are similar to, to us in their uh, immune system and in many ways being another non-human primate where there are similarities. They look at both the nasal and the lung samples. So again, one of the problems with the injectable vaccines has been, well, the virus comes in through the airways, through the nose and the mouth. And, and so what actually happens? Because that's not where the antibodies are primarily being produced. Nevertheless, they did find that there was some production of sufficient um, antibodies in those areas uh, and immune uh, response in those areas that they were found protection even when they uh, they uh, put the virus uh, into the nasal cavities or the nasal passages of these monkeys. So that's that's helpful. No evidence of this vaccine-associated enhanced respiratory disease in the initial studies. Now that's this ADE that we've heard about the uh, antibody-dependent enhancement. That's promising. We know there have been problems with previous uh, coronavirus vaccines with this antibody-dependent enhancement. You give the vaccination, you have a very good antibody response. Then you give them the wild virus, the thing that you're supposed to be uh, protected against, and they get extremely ill. That's what happened in some of these animal studies with previous corona vaccines. There's been a concern, there has been a concern about that with some of the uh, mRNA and the vector DNA vaccines. This is promising, it's early. We don't have the full results yet. We are in these phase three clinical trials, which is the last stage before potential approval. There has been a supply agreement with Australia, UK and the United States, and it's on the radar for New Zealand. Um, we don't know when the trials are gonna be finished, but probably sometime next year. The uh, Novavax product, the Covovax, has been promoted as a booster, however, to the Pfizer vaccine. Those who have concerns regarding use of fetal cells in production, or more importantly, whether the experimental uh, therapy, the experimental technique of, of messenger RNA is worrisome because there are no long term studies with that, may prefer to opt for primary vaccination with a more conventional product such as Novavax. So we're watching that carefully, and I think that's uh, perhaps going to be quite. Promising. I'll just say a few moments here about the use of these aborted human fetal cells in vaccine research. They're widely used in a lot of conventional vaccine development. And this goes back to the 1970s when they found that uh, these uh, aborted human fetal cells had stem cell characters. They would continue to be propagated, continue to have a single kind of 
well, at least that was the theory, you'd have a single type of cell that could be relied upon and would be uh, propagated again and again, and you could use it for testing for many decades. And in fact, that's what's being done. This HEK293, which is human embryonic kidney cells were used and have been used, uh, but they're kind of running out of time now. So they're running into this new cell line that again is derived from aborted fetuses. Now, there are certainly those who have a religious objection to that, and I respect that, and, and uh, uh, that's an important factor. But I'm also going to talk about that all with respect to what happens when you have fetal DNA in the vaccine development, and in fact, that may represent contaminants in vaccines which are developed using this method. Now, we know that the uh, Pfizer vaccine is supposed to be just messenger RNA and a lipid nanoparticle that enwraps around it, that enwraps it, uh, and then some adjuvants that help to stimulate the response. But is there any contamination because of the use of these fetal cells in research and development? Well, uh, it's not really known. Again, it's a matter of, you know, well, there's no proof that that's the case. Well, that's not the same as saying that you have not yet proven it. So in my view, it remains unproven to say that, you, that there is no such fetal DNA contamination. Now, why do we worry about that? Because our bodies make uh, antibodies against many things that they consider to be foreign. And if someone else's fetal DNA is now in your body, then that is a setup for potential development of antibodies to the foreign DNA, even though it is human DNA or fetal DNA in this case, a subset of us humans, somebody would have to say now that the autoimmune disease is not known whether it's going to occur in long, uh, in long term or not. We don't know. You have to, by definition, you have to do long-term studies to find that out. Uh, it's not early enough. Uh, it's too early in the game yet to have those studies. And then if it's DNA, and in fact, it's contaminants. Well, I mean, will it in fact produce a recombination, the so-called homologous recombination into our own DNA where these fragments of DNA somehow get reincorporated into our own DNA because it was a contaminant, not the RNA because that by itself may not get reincorporated. Although that, again, that's a bit of an issue we can talk about another time. But in any case, contaminant DNA um, that's in the vaccine that we receive, we don't know where it's going to go, but there is this possibility, and we have to be aware of that. So now we're going to talk about um, some uh, issues related to the adverse effects from vaccinations, and this video here will consist of testimony from a Christy Dobbs, who was interviewed on a program here from uh, from a, one of these um, uh, alternative media sites. Uh, she had been vaccine injured um, and received a vaccine in March, uh, sought um, advice from the National Institutes of Health Clinical Center, which is one of the premier sites where you go. I mean, the NIH, we all know, is involved in much of the pronouncement with respect to these vaccines. The NIH, National Institute of Health, uh, uh, has as one of its uh, its daughter institutes the National Institute of Allergy Infectious Disease, which is Dr. Fauci's kingdom, apparently. And so this is sort of where the 
Wizard of Oz kinds of pronouncements come from. And so it's of interest that a person who got an, an, an appointment there with clinical doctors, the ones who actually treat patients, had some interesting things to say about that. Most importantly, that she was told by her consultant at the National Institute of Health Clinic not to vaccinate her children based upon her own adverse effects. And so I'll let you in on, on where we go with that as we begin this video. So today we have Christy Dove, and today we're gonna to focus on the fact that she has applied to testify before the FDA on October 26th, where they're going to have a vote on whether or not they approve the vaccines for five to 11 year olds. First and foremost, you know, I had an immediate reaction following the vaccine. I had my vaccine in January. I was very fortunate to get a visit with the National Institute of Health, the NIH. And at that time, it was unknown as to what was going on with me. I still to date have not heard any of the results from sending my blood to them. But it is documented with my visit with them to not have my children be vaccinated. It, I do not know if it is because of what was going on with me or if it was because we need to find out what the mechanism of action is that's happening to adults. Um, because I am not the only one. We clearly know I am not the only one that is having adverse effects from all of the COVID vaccines. But it is documented with my visit with them to not have my children be vaccinated. I did. I brought up transverse myelitis. I brought up Guillain-Barre syndrome. I brought up um, if it could possibly be a, when your body brings back up an infection that you've had, like a past. Um, Epstein-Barr or mono or something like that. I had never had those to my knowledge, but you know, I possibly could have when I was younger and healthier and then this had, the vaccine had triggered that. Um, I also asked about mast cell activation syndrome. We have a few in our Facebook group that were being diagnosed with that. It is known that vaccines can trigger mast cell activation. And I cannot testify to this, but it does say on the website that known neurotoxins that are in vaccines are basically what triggers mast cell activation syndrome. Um, in my informed consent before I received the vaccine, I did not know that there were neurotoxins that were inside of, of the Pfizer vaccine. Since then, I've done my research and I have found that there are specific ingredients in there that could have triggered this mast cell um, activation syndrome. But in his, you know, 20 plus years of um, being a medical doctor, uh, as soon as I started telling him all of my symptoms, he just kept shaking his head, yes, yes, yes. And at the end, after I was done, he said, I can tell you, this is 99% probability that you have mast cell activation syndrome in some form of histamine response. Right before I came on, I just checked my email and I have been chosen as a participant to be able to speak for three minutes on October the 26th at this FDA public hearing. Three minutes is not a lot of time, but I will try to fit in as much of the proper documentation that I've had done to myself to prove that these vaccine adverse reactions are happening and also to prove that we are being ignored. We have been trying to have people from far and wide hear our voices since December of 2020, when these vaccine reactions started. And again, 
it hasn't been an anti-vax campaign. It has been an information campaign so that people can make informed decisions because by gosh, by golly, if this hadn't happened to me and if I would have vaccinated my children and this happened to them, I would never forgive myself. But it is documented with my visit with them to not have my children be vaccinated. And I just think that the, the public needs to know all facets of this. There are good and there are bad stories that happen from the vaccine and all we're being told is the good. We need to have the bad side told so that we can see that there are different sides to this because our stories are true. We are not misinformation, although we are being labeled that. And I want that to come across with 100% accuracy that everything that comes out of my mouth is true. Truth it is, so truth it must be. And I think that's where we are at the moment. We have a similar story here in New Zealand. And so I just uh, thought it was important to realize that this is a phenomenon that's happening, not just here, uh, but elsewhere as well, especially where there is the center of a lot of this propaganda that's coming out uh, in the United States. So now we have a discussion here by uh, Dr. Peter McCullough, who is well known to this group. Um, well known uh, throughout the world as an expert on COVID-19 and the responses to it. And uh, so he's gonna tell us a bit here in this interview with Dr. Brian Artis, uh, what his views are on myocarditis at this point in time. So uh, let's have a, a listen to Dr. McCullough. Now let's talk about another warning for the Pfizer shot. I actually printed off its fact sheet this morning too, because I like to see if they've updated them each month. And it actually lists myocarditis, inflammation of the heart muscle, and pericarditis. Do you have any concerns about these side effects, very, Mr. Cardiologist? Very important. And I've seen these patients in my practice, and I want to update Americans. Uh, in June of 2021, the CDC and FDA reviewed about 200 cases of young people who are hospitalized with myocarditis. And it looks serious. The FDA thought it was serious. They put a warning on it and said, you know, we don't know how common this is. It may be rare. It may be common. Uh, and I can tell you, as an expert in safety data, we never say something is rare unless we check everybody for it. So we use the term tip of the iceberg. I was telling Americans at that time, wait a minute, 200 cases, this is the tip of the iceberg. And you know where we are now? As of October 1st, we'll see it on the Red Box report. We are up to 6,812 certified cases of myocarditis. Certified, that means the CDC has investigated this. I've reported these cases. And you know, in each case I reported, the CDC officer calls and verifies it. 6,812 young people have had heart damage in a paper by Tracy Hogan College from University of California Davis. She has shown through the VSAFE and VERIT data 86% of these young people, these children, are hospitalized with heart damage, chest pain, elevations in troponin, dramatic EKG changes. About a quarter have early signs and symptoms of heart failure, reduced left ventricular ejection fraction. We have to use heart failure medications. I've seen these patients in my practice. It's not hard. It's not easy to make it go away. Uh, the elevations in these troponins are about a hundredfold higher than we've ever seen with a troponin elevation with the natural infection. So if you can't construe vaccine-induced myocarditis, a heart injury due to the vaccine directly going to the heart compared to what we've ever seen with the natural infection. And in the Hogan analysis, a young person is more likely to be hospitalized with myocarditis than ever than just taking their chances with the virus and getting hospitalized with COVID. Have you found in your practice uh, early on, ever in your career, that it's common to see myocarditis in young people? Virtually never see it. 
And has it been alarming to you? Too? And, and the data suggests it's explosive. You know, in the Hope data, it's after shot, uh, shot number two, boys more than girls. And I can tell you in a recent report that just hit the wires from Choi and colleagues from South Korea, they have a 22 year old young Korean man died of myocarditis and he got an autopsy. His heart was loaded with inflammation, spike protein in the atria and the ventricles. It's absolutely catastrophic. We shouldn't lose one young person to the vaccine because COVID is so mild in young people and we can treat it anyway. And to start to review these horrific cases of autopsies all over the world of young people dying with the vaccine is unconscionable. Unconscionable it is. And again, to emphasize the point that Dr. McCullough is saying that um, 1,000 or 100 times uh, the kinds of uh, inflammatory effects and injury uh, statistics on the, on the troponin, which is an enzyme that is ri rises with heart damage, 100 times that seen from the natural viral infection caused myocarditis. So yes, you can get it from viral disease. It's very rare. Uh, these uh, episodes of myocarditis in young people post-vaccination is uh, becoming less rare and most worrisome, especially as he notes in comparison to the number hospitalized uh, from uh, COVID-19 itself in that age group. So what indeed are these long-term effects of myocarditis? There was a, a report from Highwire uh, recently uh, Dale Victory and uh, his guests who were discussing that. It was a paper that was published here uh, in January of 19, so going back a while, looking at the natural history of myocarditis of the viral type, not the COVID-19 type, not the post-vaccination type, but just a commentary about myocarditis in general. And we have just discussed how that actually is going to be more mild than the actual kind of myocarditis happening after the vaccinations. But here's the historical uh, evidence of what happens when you look at MRI. Now, MRI is a, is a very good technique, uh, which is the kind of field I was in for quite a while, uh, that looks at uh, the uh, effects of inflammation on heart muscle uh, and its function, how well does it, does it beat, um, how well does the heart muscle contract, and so on. So it turns out that there is, uh, as always, a variable presentation of myocarditis as there is in many other disease processes. And indeed it can be acute and severe or it can be mild or it can be subclinical, meaning you don't have symptoms, you don't even know that it's there, but there's something still going on in the heart muscle if you were able to look at it under the microscope, which of course we cannot do readily in living people. But if you had the ability to look into that uh, in, the, uh, in, in general, uh, you would um, still be able to find some evidence of inflammation. That's where MRI can be helpful because it can actually show evidence of inflammation because of the various imaging findings, even when there are no symptoms. What they looked at though is, is those clinically diagnosed in this study. And they looked at those who presented with the chest pain, shortness of breath on exertion, often indeed related to an underlying viral illness. And they found an increased incidence with COVID-19 in a CDC report unrelated to this paper, but related to the comments that we're now talking about is that um, the background incidence of uh, COVID-19 related, uh, or the, the in incidence of myocarditis with COVID-19 was up to 15 times that they claim 
was in the general population due to ordinary viruses. And in the normal case where you have viral myocarditis, most of these individuals are older, meaning 75 years, two thirds of the cases according to CDC were over 75 years of age. On the other hand, after the COVID-19 vaccinations, we're seeing this in the younger age groups. This is different from the normal post-viral myocarditis. We're seeing it, especially in males, we're seeing it in a situation where the mortality, even in the natural cases of myocarditis can be up to 20% in the first year, 55% at an 11 year follow-up. Again, that's for the viral myocarditis of the ordinary virus kinds, not the vaccination, post-vaccination myocarditis, which given what we have heard from Dr. McCullough suggests that indeed the mortality may be yet greater still. Point being here, there is no such thing as mild myocarditis because once you have inflammation, you have destruction of the heart muscle cells, they do not regenerate, they are replaced by scar. When scarring of the heart muscle occurs, the heart muscle function is, uh, uh, declines. Uh, you may indeed, as Dr. McCullough alluded to, you may be uh, stuck with having to take uh, heart medicines to strengthen the heart muscle it never restores it to normal. And that's going to be a long-term phenomenon for decades if you are going to have this process afflict you when you are uh, in your younger years. An interesting um, video here by Dr. John Campbell, who's a, a PhD nurse educator from UK, looked at a study here where um, in mice, they looked at the uh, deliberate intravenous injection of an mRNA vaccine in these mice because they had some concerns about why are we seeing these myocarditis cases in humans? And it turned out that the process of how you make an injection is important. Now, every nursing student, every nursing student, and most doctors, at least in the day, and I don't know what it's like now, but when we were taught how you do injections, the idea is that when you inject into any site of the body, but especially where there are going to be blood vessels, uh, you uh, directly uh, pull back on the syringe just a bit before you actually inject the product that you're injecting. And the reason for that is you want to see if there is any blood which comes back in the syringe before you start your injection. Because once blood comes back in your syringe, you know that you are in a blood vessel. And that means that the injection you're about to make is not going to be staying in the muscle. It's going to go into a blood vessel and go directly back to the heart through the veins and the venous circulation. So that's standard technique and it has been from the beginning. And that's what every nursing student and medical student really knows about. But the interesting thing was that that's what they did here, they, they deliberately injected intravenously this mRNA vaccine in these mice, and believe it or not, that's what happened. They developed the myocarditis uh, involving the heart muscle, which is the myocarditis part, and the pericarditis or the sac surrounding the heart uh, was also associated with uh, that uh, effect in these, these experiments. So they found that there were indeed microscopic degeneration, death of the heart cells, permanent damage, 
This is what we know is the case from the autopsy study that Dr. McCullough was referring to, and it's replaced by SCAR. SCAR doesn't do anything to help the heart pump, of course, and that then leads later on to development of heart failure, and that's what happened in the experimental animals. Calcification of the heart sac, uh, which inhibits proper contraction. You can imagine if you've got a heart trying to pump here and you've got a sac that says, okay, your motion is limited, that you're going to have a problem with heart function as well. That's called constrictive pericarditis, and it happens when you get these calcifications. Also some damage to the liver cells, this was what they found in these experiments in the mice. So failure to aspirate the syringe first may indeed result in inadvertent, inadvertent, not intentional intravenous injection in human subjects, and in fact, lead to some of these findings that we now know to occur. So uh, that's related to the myocarditis. Um, there was also, uh, as Dr. Campbell mentioned, the potential that when you are injecting into the blood, this may also be associated with some of these events of the so-called vaccine-induced thrombotic thrombocytopenia, which is big terms for saying that there's an abnormal clotting mechanism. You're, you're making clots, you're using up the clotting cells, which are the platelets. Pretty soon when you've used them all up, you don't have any anymore. Then you have easy other uh, places where there can be extensive bleeding somewhere else after you've used up all those clotting cells because you don't have anything left to make new clots where there is new bleeding. So you get this, this, um, this combination of blood clots and bleeding, and that can be a known vaccine-induced event, not just with this vaccine, but it's also well-known with other vaccines as well. Now, the odd thing is that the UK, US, and the WHO specifies that you should not aspirate the needle. Well, you know, you're supposed to believe that this is to minimize any pain associated with the injection. <sighs> yeah, unbelievable, as Dr. Campbell said. And he wrote to a member of parliament in the UK saying, look, this is a finding, this is a problem. This non-doctor, non-health person, MP, wrote back to him and said, um, we're not going to do that. You don't know what you're talking about. And there we have it. So... This is where you have members of parliament practicing medicine when they do not have the capability to do so. So now here's just a little item that I thought we need, might be interested in. Back in October last year, <clears throat> there was a presentation before the Food and Drug Administration, which regulates the vaccines, vaccine products, biological products committee, advisory committee, as it's called here. And just for about a split second in the recorded um, six hour, eight hour, actually eight hour and 50 minute presentation before this committee, for one split second, <coughs> excuse me, for one split second, this slide appeared on the screen. And it showed that indeed the FDA is as was very well aware two months before release of the various vaccines using this mRNA technique and DNA technique, that there was a long list of potential adverse effects that they were going to be expecting. Now they say subject to change. Well, yeah, subject to change. Now, these are the things that they were expecting might be seen following the COVID-19 vaccines. Oh, a little bit of a side effect problem here. Death is a bit of a side effect. I guess you don't have any side effects after that one. 
Pregnancy and birth outcomes uh, not known, the thrombocytopenia we just talked about, the disseminated antivascular coagulation, DIC, that's actually more related to the thing I was just mentioning with the thrombocytopenic uh, 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 problems, uh, thrombotic thrombocytopenia. Uh, embolism, we know the uh, getting clots in your legs, clots uh, in various organs of the body and so forth. All of these things have in fact been observed, convulsions and seizures, strokes, uh, anaphylaxis, acute uh, myocardial infarction, acute heart attacks, dying acutely right away from a clot in your coronary arteries. And the Guillain-Barre, the transverse, all these things have been noted in cephalon. And so it's like, it's not like they didn't know, it's just that they didn't, you know, they just were not transparent about that at the time that this went on to become approved. So that's, uh, I think, something that is important for us to know. So here we are with the latest statistics that I was able to come up with uh, just before this presentation. From the CARM in New Zealand, uh, they have their summary of reported deaths, total of 86 deaths have been reported. And we have talked before about how difficult it is to make those reports to the CARM because it takes a lot of time to do so. Uh, the, the docs, nurses, and other healthcare practitioners are actively discouraged from making those reports. Uh, and so despite that, we have 86 reports, 31 of these they have claimed are unlikely related to the COVID-19 vaccine. No autopsies, no post-mortem exams, just looking at the clinical information. Uh, we don't know what these were, were they in fact uh, those related to various clotting problems, which resulted in a clinical event. Clots in the, uh, in the, in the um, uh, cerebral circulation, the, the circulation to the brain, stroke, for example. Uh, clots in the coronary arteries, we just discussed heart attacks. We don't know how they concluded that these were not related to the COVID-19 vaccine. Some could not be assessed, some under investigation. They acknowledge one death due to the vaccine-induced myocarditis, awaiting coronary determination, and so on. Now, post-vaccine deaths, according to Health Forum New Zealand, which is a site that's run by Linda Wharton, very interesting and important site, looking at the temporal relationship, that is how soon afterwards, how soon after the vaccine administration were deaths reported, or how much, or when, when, how soon after did they get, uh, did they occur? And as of uh, just a few weeks ago, 202 of these have been reported and been looked at, um, again, not with autopsies, but looking at a suspicious timely event which happened following the vaccination. So somewhere between this and this, in fact, these are undoubtedly going to be underreported as well. And we've talked before about how underreporting to the various systems uh, can be uh, very significant. In fact, in New Zealand, they're proud of the fact that they have reporting probably 5% of the actual cases are reported. And they, that's so much better than the United States where the VAERS system is known to report only 1% of the adverse events. In any case, this is what we have somewhere between here and here for the post-vaccination deaths in New Zealand in 2021, three deaths from COVID-19. Um, and in fact, we're likely to see uh, that the Delta-related deaths are going to be a lot less concerning than is the case in uh, the original Wuhan strain. We know that data out of UK, out of England, uh, where the uh, 
lethality of the Delta is considerably less than the previous strains. So that's all I have for the moment. We can take some questions now and then we'll have a few final moments uh, to look at some lessons from history. Um, okay, there are a few questions. I'm gonna go from back to front a little bit and um, work them through. You're not saying that uh, the aspiration thing is the only avenue to myocarditis. Are there other avenues to myocarditis, right? Well, it was an interesting finding. I'm not saying, yeah, I mean, it. Yeah. Uh, blood circulation is gonna be variable. The injection site is gonna be, all these things produce a yeah. lot of variability. It's just, a, it's an interesting finding. Yeah. Can you comment on what we might be seeing in the UK with more susceptibility among vaccinated people to illness, COVID, whatever we're really seeing coming out of the UK at the moment with their super flu? Uh, can you comment on that uh, at this stage? Would you like to? Um, yeah. I mean, as far as I, I mean, general comments are, we know that that study out of Vietnam had shown that the uh, presence of, um, of virus in the nasal passages was over 250 times greater than it had been in the non-vaccinated population before the Delta. So the original strain uh, was a lot less prevalent in the nasal passages. So what do we have here? We have all these vaccinated folks who still get the virus. They still harbor it. They may not even have the symptoms as much. So they think they're bulletproof. They go around in fact spreading the virus uh, from their nasal passages in ordinary, going about ordinary life. Mm. And because they're not ill, they don't think there's anything wrong. They still are spreading the virus uh, itself from, uh, from normal activities. And, you know, they may be um, in comparison to an unvaccinated person who's, who does get the virus, they may develop symptoms sooner and they may develop more severe symptoms, perhaps. I mean, that's the um, standard uh, issue we get from the regulators and from the officials is that uh, the vaccines will prevent serious illness and hospitalizations and deaths. And there seems to be still some evidence that that's the case. But that said, um, in many places, the vast majority of those admitted to hospital turn out to be vaccinated individuals. So um, you may have, for example, 60% of hospital cases may be vaccinated individuals, but that's not entirely the whole story because if 85% of the population is vaccinated, then if there were no effect, it would be 85% of the hospital cases are vaccinated and 15% of the unvaxxed. So, but still 60%, for example, and that's a round figure. You can find various numbers like that in various countries. Mm. Um, so it doesn't prevent transmission. It doesn't prevent you from getting infected. It doesn't prevent you from um, actually having disease at all. It just prevents you from having, presumably at this point, which as far as I'm aware, you still have um, less serious illness and, and reduce hospitalizations and deaths. That may change because we know that the original uh, product, the original strain, the Wuhan strain, which was the basis for forming this Pfizer vaccine and the other mRNA, it's no longer there, it's, it's just gone. And, and we're dealing with, you know, two or three or four variants removed from that. Mm. And we know that the, the original vaccine does, is not as strong against that. I mean, whatever immunity there is, it fades after two or three months, the boosters are coming in. And, and, you know, again, that changes the definition of who's vaccinated now. It used to be, well, okay, you had your two jabs, you're done. 
Now it's, well, have you had your latest booster? And then next, you know, six months from now or four months, oh, well, you've got to get another one or you won't be considered unvaccinated and so on and so forth. So, yeah, we know what the story is. The, the head of Pfizer has basically said, yeah, well, bring it on. We're ready for it, you know. Ready for make some a few more. Yeah, we'll just make a few more billion every time we release yeah. another variant, um, yeah. uh, you know, for the boosters and, and that sort of thing. So yeah. there are there is a couple of comments on that, though. I think the um, the first one is it wasn't even designed to prevent you catching COVID in the first place. Right. It was never That's the intention, right. was it? It was designed yeah. to reduce yeah. symptoms. But then assessing whether or not someone has reduced symptoms is pretty dodgy. Because how do you know they're going to have symptoms in the first place? I mean, I guess we know that young people don't really have symptoms or catch it really. Well, don't appear to have many symptoms. So it's a funny one, isn't it? This call that they've made. Yeah, yeah. And it, I mean, it is. Uh, we, we don't, yeah. We, it, it, well, there's so many things that don't make sense that um, we, could be, we could be here all day. Okay. Um, so. Apparently, some media and celebrities um, are now saying that long-term data has been released from um, has is available. There's long-term data about Pfizer, but has there actually? Do you know of any data that's beyond the six months? No, I mean there was a six-month follow-up data release which showed similar number of hospitalizations and deaths in the vax versus the unvax group. Okay, Mm. so the deaths didn't change. No. Um, in, in, in those two groups. Um, and that's acknowledging the fact that there may have been some adverse reactions in the vaxxed group, mm. which was mixed in to this, those same numbers. So whatever benefit there was among the vax groups with respect to COVID deaths, if any, which, you know, there, there were very few. I mean, I don't know, the whole total deaths was like 14 versus 13 or something out of 22,000 in one group, 22,000 in another group. Um, but it, it's not clearing it, you know, for with respect to its uh, you know, safety, just because of that. No, but, no, no but, more data that I'm aware of yet. No, and the other thing, of course, is they've destroyed their placebo group now. There is really no placebo group, so I'm not sure how they're going to get further data to compare against anybody, because they've given the vaccine to the placebo group, for the, for the most part, anyway. They've been offered and, and administered that vaccine, so we start to wonder... Well, that's right. And if you vaccinate 90% of your population before you get, you know, your traffic light thing, yeah. uh, then you're not going to have much of a control group left in New Zealand either, are you? I mean, and that, you know, you say, why is there such a heavy push about this? You know, why is there such a, uh, a, a push to go well beyond informed consent, well beyond Nuremberg uh, Code uh, provisions, international human rights provisions? Why are these things all being ignored? Well, mm. you don't have a control group. You can't find out that you actually have had some long-term adverse effects from the vaccine. No, no. And when we start fiddling around with what was already there in the population beforehand in terms of like young people and myocarditis, when you start making light of what was already there, you know, saying there would probably would have been things like that, then it all becomes a bit skew with. Um, aborted fetal cell or fetal cell line debris in the vaccine, some people were thinking, "Is oh, so it's not a rumor? Is this actually true? And if so, okay. where is this coming from? What, what, which abortion are we talking about? Or many? Are there many?" Okay, so I, I want to be clear that I'm not saying that I know mm-hmm. that within the Pfizer vaccine production facility that there has been contamination with fetal DNA. 
I, I'm aware of, and I'm, I'm confirming that uh, fetal DNA cells, fetal cells were used in the research and development of the Pfizer vaccine. Mm. So as you're doing the initial work on it and you're, and you're uh, processing it through the various cell lines, uh, you are, they, they were using aborted fetal cell mm. uh, uh, agents to do that. Now this goes back to the 1970s when they acquired yes. this, this original specimen. It's not an uncommon thing with vaccines to use aborted cell, you know, fetal cell lines. It's so common that almost all, or many at least of the normal childhood vaccines have been developed using aborted fetal cell. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, th there are instances where it, it's not being used. I can't name off it, but there are charts and tables that show you this. But mm. yeah, I'm just saying is we don't know, given the fact that there have already been reports of contamination of definitely the Moderna vaccine and presumably the Pfizer as well. There have been some reports about what else is in there. Mm. Uh, we cannot say that there is no contamination within the vaccines. Uh, and so again, it's, it's like, well, we need to see the studies. Uh, it's not yet proven, but it's not, you know, we cannot say that it does not exist. It's not out of the realms of possibility either, is it? Um, yeah. Okay, so um, we've had Delta for ages. Are we going to get a new one soon? We're going to get a new variant or are we a bit hooked on Delta? <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I mean, if, if the, the pressure would have to, the, the, the evolving or the other strains of which there are probably hundreds, okay, would have to somehow do it better than Delta is doing it. But Delta is very contagious. And that's, the, again, we've talked about before, that's the usual evolution of how these things work is that the viruses tend to get more contagious, less lethal, and they spread out more, they spread more and they've done their, and that's how they eventually become what's called endemic anyway, is eventually, yeah. you know, it's like, like other viruses, they become the common cold. It's like endemic in the, in the, yeah. in the population because yeah. it's developed to the point where it's not lethal as much anymore, but it's contagious since everybody gets it. And so yeah. virus succeeds. I mean, it's it, it happen. It, yeah, it, it succeeds. So nothing succeeds like success. And if you've been more contagious than the other variants, then you win. You know? And you don't kill your hosts, even better. So you just keep going, right? It's a clever virus. Yeah. Okay, so um, we don't know what's coming. We know there's a Mu virus and another one starting with a number, but they're obviously not as catchy as this one. So we've, we've hit on a jackpot with Delta, it feels, yeah. for the meantime. Um, let's talk a little bit about the Novavax. Uh, what's the story with spike proteins in the Novavax? Are those dangerous? Is there a potential for that to be having similar problems? Well, I mean, it's it's the difference is that your your body's not making more of the spike protein. So whatever it is you get in the vaccine is that's it. You're not going to get any more than that. So the being a conventional vaccine, you you take something a, a part of a protein of the virus. In this case, the spike protein. And yes, it's still pretty focused on saying, well, it's just that one thing. It's not like you have a whole virus, which then the immune system can look at, you know, the 50 proteins that happen to make up the nucleocapsid or the, or the, the uh, envelope uh, capsid. Um, you're taking one. And so mm -hmm. it's still going to have some limitations. Uh, the spike protein is a really important one because that's what unlocks the doors into the cells that allows the virus to get there and, and, and to propagate and to mm -hmm. replicate. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there's only so many of them. And so the body will eventually get rid of them. It will do what it's going to do to respond to uh, 
uh, the spike protein, which is um, reflected on the, the nanoparticle gets fused into the muscle cells of the shoulder again. Hmm. So I suspect it's going to con it's going to be safer. I expect that it's going to be safer, and that's what the initial trials have shown. But again, I mean, got to have large numbers. Large numbers means big money. Novavax is a small company. They've still been sort of slowed down because the FDA did not approve one of their manufacturing techniques to be rolled out because it couldn't be scaled up quite as well. Novavax was an unknown company in the beginning. They happened to get it a few little crumbs from the warp speed program that you know President Trump had, had hired. And he's not, Novavax is not in the in the favorite uh, list of vaccine manufacturers for Dr. Fauci. So they didn't get, you know, tens of billions, hundreds of, you know, millions, tens of billions of dollars handed out by of taxpayer money because Dr. Fauci didn't really mm. like them. He didn't, you know, it does so, feel like Pfizer's had a good foothold. Uh, a lot of people seem to be moving more and more and more to Pfizer at the moment. So yeah, I am surprised yeah. that we are getting the Novavax uh, with this idea of having that for the booster. I was just speaking to a friend in the UK and her father-in-law, he's a doctor actually, he had the AstraZeneca for the first shots. And now he's being told he has to have Pfizer. They're moving to the Pfizer for his booster. And he's feeling quite concerned about that because he's saying, why would I have Pfizer for my next, my next, my next shot when I had AstraZeneca mm -hmm. for my first. So it is odd how people are moving rapidly to that one and we're not. Well, we're moving away, but. Well, I mean, it, it, you'd have to see what's in the Pfizer contract because uh, yeah. what's in these contracts has been, it's like, you know, the mafia says, it's like, well, you know, make it a mafia, you can't refuse. If you don't do this, yeah. if you don't take yeah. this and if you don't pass the laws necessary to protect Pfizer's interests, which is what's in the contracts we know in the other countries, we know that. Uh, we don't know what else is there or, you know, it's like somebody has said, well, you know, you'll have, you'll be wearing concrete overshoes in the local river if you don't do this. I, you know, it's, that's what these, these companies do. It's like, I mean, how many billions of dollars have they paid in, in fines uh, for defrauding and deceiving public and all that? It's like, well, yeah, we, we don't know. You know, we, we can't them. imagine that kind of thing going on. We don't know what it's like. Mm. Mm. Yeah, we need to see a copy of that contract, people. Um, but when it comes to just one more question then about that spike protein though, so you say it, it's, it gets injected into the body and you deal with that. Is it honest? Is it a, a, of a number that you would be likely to encounter in a natural infection, or are you going to get a ton more spikes? And presumably there'll be individual variability about how you manage that spike in your body. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's the thing is there's going to be individual variability because on the one hand you have a known or at least an expected maximum dose you're going to get in the vaccine in the vaccine mm. okay on the other hand if you get the natural infection well how much spike protein is mm. expressed on the actual virus code itself depends on how rapidly it replicates where it goes in the body and all of those things which are unknown because if you happen to have a really really good immune system that takes care of it in the beginning and you're the one that has like sniffles and nothing else yeah well then by definition your total dose and i, I don't know the exact number that's speculate but the numbers may be a whole lot less than if you get the actual infection, it's down into your lungs, starts replicating in much larger numbers than would have been the case in the vaccine. Yeah, yeah. I heard a, um, a respiratory guy talk the other day about the, and this isn't the first time I've heard this, where people are talking about the antibodies required to fight this respiratory illness should be in the respiratory tract and yeah. that we're creating antibodies, blood antibodies. So how useful yeah. are they to us? Well, there's some amount that, 
I mean, by definition, it's in it's in the circulation of the the nasal the venous the venous plexus of the nose. Yeah. Okay, it's going to carry that in there, but it's not on the surface of the mucous membranes. All right, the mucous membranes are the lining of the nose. That when they get overactive, that's what gives us our, our, our you know our nasal secretions. Yeah. And that's where that antibody resides, if it's the IgA antibody, which is that which lines our surface of the mucosa. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's going to be not as good as if you had a IgA uh, vac vaccine, for example, it was actually administered by intranasal injection. And there are such vaccines in development, yeah, too. Yeah, there's flu ones like that. But are they any good? Do they, they have fairly low efficacy, don't they, those? It, yeah. Because you're, you're not getting both. I mean, you have once it gets into the blood, then whatever happened in the upper airway, mm. I mean, it's passed, it's opened the door, it's past the barn door, right? Mm. So you've got to have really both areas. I mean, the, the point is is that with the uh, with the injectable product, you're making bloodborne um, antibody, IG, IgG, IgM, and, and all of that, um, yeah. predominantly IgG after after a period of time. And that's going to go in the circulation of the blood, which, of course, you've got lots of rich blood vessels in the lungs, in the lung circulation. And that's where yeah. you begin to really get into the big, big problems as the vaccine replication starts there. You have the various uh, cellular mm. and other immune responses that contribute to that. Mm. Yeah, it would be best to have both. And I was interested to hear that when they, in that study of the macaque money, monkeys, when they were using the Novavax, they instilled the, in two ways, they instilled the, um, the the virus through the nasal passages to see what would happen. Mm. Then separately, they instilled some of that virus into the lungs to see mm. what happened with that. So I don't know, they put a catheter down or something, I guess. And um, so they had beneficial effect in both instances in terms of the amount of clinical disease that they got. Mm. So I don't know how that's different or you know what, why that's different, but at least it's it's somewhat promising that there may be mm. some more local effect there potentially. Mm. Mm. Some people are asking, uh, is it is it worthwhile at all? I mean, certainly that must be again variable bec between people on whether you decide that you're a good candidate to have a vaccine or not. I mean, this has to be a personal decision, preferably not mandated well, by the government. But well, um, that's right. I, I mean, I, I think one can make the argument that. Um, there is still a lot of unanswered questions uh, regarding the Pfizer product. And in fact, there are a number of uh, injuries which are reported, which are sufficiently worrisome mm. that you do not want to, at least personally, I would not want to take that vaccine as myself. No. I, would, I, would, I would consider uh, taking a product which was used by more conventional development, uh, especially one where there's no real chance of uh, contamination with uh, human fetal DNA um, and the potential for autoimmune disease may be lower from the outset, from the get-go. Before you've checked for it, you know that because you're avoiding the various contaminants that are known can mm. cause autoimmune mm. disease and have likely caused it in other vaccines, you don't have that with the development of this product because it's not using those cell lines mm. in research and production. Um, so but I don't on, know, the I other hand, on the other hand, you're not a 16-year-old boy or a 23-year-old woman or a healthy 52-year-old guy. You're none of those things. So that's I mean, right. that's, yeah. Well, that, that's that's the that's the other question is like who needs it in the first place? And vaccines until this, you know, business that we have now has never been something that has not been considered on a person-to-person 
clinician face-to-face -face decision between healthcare practitioner, between doctor and patient as to the, you know, the, the, the applicability in your particular case. This blanket business, you know, being edicts from non-doctors or those who don't practice medicine, like our, you know, MOH fellow. Yeah. He has a medical degree, he's not practiced yeah. medicine in any, any degree, you know, yeah. to any extent. You know, and as Vita, those edicts are coming along for those who don't practice medicine. Yeah. And also, presumably, for uh, we're also asking a lot of people who haven't touched a patient in years, been anywhere yeah. near a patient. Right. No kind yeah. of ever and ever. In fact, Michael Baker has never dealt with patients. Yeah, those, they're they're, they're sort of medical. They're they're health, they're scientists. They're microbiologists, epidemiologists, yeah. and yeah. virologists, immunologists, all that. They don't yeah. treat patients. They're not doctors. They don't know what it's like. They just don't. They can't. Yeah. yeah. No, they can't. Okay, last question before we flip to the end. Um, the, some people are asking about Sinovac. It's the Coronavac vaccine. It sounds like uh, Singapore is going for that one. They're moving towards that. Have you got any comments about that vaccine, Sinovac? Uh, is that the Sinovac? Which did you say? The Sinovac, the Chinese? Yeah, yeah. It sounds <laughs> like they say saying Singapore's moving to that. Um, do you have any comments about that? Well, it's, China, it's the Chinese uh, RNA, mRNA virus. Um, yeah. I don't know much about it except it's an mRNA virus and has many so of the same. another one. Mm. Yeah, well, and then the Russian the Russian version of that too. This you know Sputnik yeah. is also an mRNA yeah. product. Yeah, people are saying they don't think they'll trust a doctor again unless they belong to NZD SOS. You know, the funny <laughs> thing is, I think I, we're just starting to see as well. I think when these mandates hit the doctors and the nurses and whatnot, now uh, I think we're going to see more people speaking out because all of a sudden it's you know. It's here for them, and and it's them that's on the line. So we'll watch this space, I think, for more voices in this. Yeah, yeah, we we, we need to watch the space, sure. Yeah, I think so. All right, you've got a little bit more to talk about, so I'm going to disappear and let you do that. You can share your screen again. Uh, so here we are again. Uh, just an update on the News Hub responses. I guess we're all many of us are at least still aware that there were these two articles appeared in News Hub on 4 September, accusing me of various um, you know crimes. I guess. Um, and this is two hour debunking, you know, the, the anti-vax video, which I've referred to in the beginning, supposedly debunked, of course, I'm really responding to their claims they said I made that they say were debunked. In fact, I'm going to respond to that and debunk the debunkers. And I'll leave it for those of you who have uh, an interest in that to go to that site and uh, see what you think about it all. Here's the website here, uh, nzbsos.com. Uh, letters and press, and in that you'll see the dedicated section called uh, Peter versus News Hub. And uh, the first seven of these uh, should have been uh, the last of the you know, by tomorrow. The seventh of these will be ready. It does take a bit of time to research and to uh, to get the references and to formulate this. But I I will continue to do this as long as I can. And uh, just unfortunately going to be a bit slow, but here it is. There's seven there for of interest, and um, uh, you'll see new content uh, posted every Monday in bold italics. That's the most recent one, and then after seven days, it'll go back to the regular uh, print font. So there's that. Now um, let's have a look at some Soviet history and what it, we can learn from that today. And that's the point of discussing these lessons from Soviet history because 
uh, as I've tried to point out, there are parallels between then and now. And you might ask, why am I talking about Soviet history? Well, my, my wife is Ukrainian. She grew up in the Soviet Union. Uh, she was learning how to uh, shoot Kalashnikov rifles in grade school for the Soviet uh, defense of the Soviet Union. Uh, she was reading passages from Marx and Lenin, trying to make any sense of it uh, during her uh, training years. And so she's well aware of what that is actually like. And so I think I try to bring from her experience something that we can learn here in New Zealand where we have not faced that to date. So in the 1930s, uh, there was this uh, terror famine or great famine as it was called, uh, the Kolodomor, which means the uh, starving, the, uh, the starving to death, uh, which was a engineered famine uh, that resulted from Stalin's agricultural practices. Early on, there was um, a, 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 a collectivization, meaning the firms that had been, uh, and the uh, productive properties, uh, agricultural properties that had been in private hands uh, to some degree owned, especially in Ukraine by these kulaks, these landed uh, peasants um, were confiscated by the government and collectivized. And so the state now acquired ownership of these farms and then basically those persons who had been on the land and had worked them and benefited from them personally now were forced to work as effectively serfs on land which was formerly theirs. And so if they didn't like that, they would get um, uh, deported possibly and, and that's what happened anyway uh, over a period of time. So naturally enough, there was a drop in crop production and food shortages which were exacerbated by some of the agricultural practices that I spoke a few times ago with the, um, the advice of Lysenko, who was a agricultural minister who had these strange ideas about genetics, which you know, were eventually had to be turned over because they were, uh, they were um, not uh, correct and they did not align with scientific knowledge at the time. So drop in crop production for shortages, and indeed the police and the Soviet apparatchiks would come along, they'd confiscate the crops from the land formerly owned by the crops, or the uh, peasants, and they'd even take their personal food stores, they'd take their pets away because starvation was rampant. And they revolted, uh, naturally enough, as you could well imagine, and they were removed and exiled oftentimes to Siberia if they weren't outright shot and killed. Now, these regions of Ukraine had earlier, which was known as the Ukraine at the time and is today known as Ukraine. They had earlier opposed the Red Army, which was the Bolsheviks, and they had come to power uh, in uh, Russia, which was the, of course, by far the largest other republics in the Soviet Union. So they were, uh, they were um, uh, opposing uh, the Red Army by history, and Stalin had always held a grudge against them for uh, protesting against this kind of collectivization and this unification of Soviet culture across all of the 15 republics. And so his terror and oppression against the Ukrainian uh, people was even exacerbated by their intrinsic desire to be a free people, and their culture and their traditions and their language were prohibited. Uh, and my fact, my 
my dear wife has told me the story where she was 11 years old. She went to the store because her grandmother asked her to go get some bread or something. She was wearing yellow stockings and a blue blouse. Now those are the national colors of Ukraine. And when she came home, she found that there was a policeman who had been visiting her grandmother. And the policeman was saying, how is it that you did not tell your daughter not to wear these, these awful, these terrible, oppressive uh, col uh, colors, which are counter to the Soviet Union and to communism. And she you know, had to slap my dear wife, 11 years old, had to slap her around and say, what are you doing wearing these colors? This is the kind of thing that went back, that went on uh, even much more oppressively during that period of time during Stalin. And, and you know, I'm talking about an instance which was would have been 1985 or so that this happened in my, my wife. So th th this is ingrained. It's, it's not something that's out of, the, um, out of the blue. Now, these news reports of the famine in which were happening at that time were largely suppressed. And so there were these fake reports coming out of the New York Times, which is supposedly the paper of record, calls themselves the paper of record. Walter Durante, who was this dissolute uh, journalist, uh, was filing all these reports with the New York Times and said, oh, fine, everything's fine. All this business about famine is a rumor. Well, a journalist, an independent journalist, English uh, uh, gentleman, uh, found his way inside of the Soviet Union uh, and he, um, he snuck his way into the hinterlands, into the regions, and he found what was really the case. And he filed actual reports. He lived the terror uh, he saw people getting a shot for just wanting to have bread that they hadn't had in weeks or, you know, this sort of thing. Very interesting film on this called Mr. Jones. And uh, that just came out in 2019. For those of you interested in that whole story, that's a really interesting um, documentary of the life of Gareth Jones and what he had reported. So it's really unknown how many perished during these years while Stalin kind of made sure of that because he murdered the census takers in 1937, which had undoubtedly shown a marked fall in the population. Best estimates somewhere between seven and 10 million died from the various effects of this planning, of, of this, uh, uh, this um, uh, proposal that was carried out. Starvation, cannibalism, lynching, displacement, all these things that happened as a result of this engineered famine. So I have to say, now, what about this business called the significant natural areas? These have ecologic value. They can be removed from certain planned uses without owner compensation. They can potentially uh, markedly reduce the valuation of land. Central planning comes along and says, oh, by the way, you're not allowed to grow this or that. You know, it's a bit of a stretch at this point in time to say that it's exactly like the engineered starvation but we don't really know. It's like, as often is the case with certain regimes, they tell you one thing to make you not so nervous, and then they continue to do what they have denied saying that they're going to do. So maybe SMA means something altogether different. So what Stalin had learned is that, as reported here in a, uh, in a commentary from Vladimir Zelenko, who you may know is 
one of the doctors, a family doctor from upstate New York, from the Orthodox Jewish community who had been born in Ukraine. And he treated a lot of his, uh, his community for COVID-19 in the early days with hydroxychloroquine and zinc uh, and azithromycin and had huge improvement in the rates of hospitalization somewhere uh, by uh, something close to an 85, 90% reduction in those who actually were admitted to hospital from the populations by comparison to what was being done elsewhere without those interventions. So in a recent interview with Dr. McCullough, uh, he stated the following. This is his, his knowledge from having grown up in, the, in Ukraine, at least having been born in Ukraine in his first few years. Stalin once did an experiment. He took a chicken, pulled out its feathers while it was alive, bleeding, suffering. He threw it a little piece of wheat and it started following him. And he said, look how easy it is to govern stupid people as long as you give them a little treat or maybe something else. We have to remember this is what tyrants believe. Liberty is precious and so precious that it must be rationed. And who gets to do the rationing? That's a question we all have to ask as we look at these dark times. But there's actually more. There, is those, there are those things which sustain us because we can also celebrate in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings perseverance. Perseverance brings proven character. Proven character brings hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit was given to us. And with that, I turn that back to you. Excellent. Oh, it's really nice. People are saying, uh, someone said that the end is um, the, their favorite part. When you, when you have your wrap up at the end, I'm just going to put us both on. Uh, that's their favorite part at the end. And it is, it's, um, it's really interesting to reflect back on history not so long ago actually we were just saying that before we started weren't we that it really yep. wasn't so long ago and we would actually I'd mentioned to you about Lithuania and how rough things were looking in Lithuania which you'll talk yeah. about you said we could talk about that another time yeah um, we'll talk about that a couple of weeks yep. and it's really only 40 years since that country's had to deal with tyranny uh, on this scale and it's uh, what were you saying you said it's two generations really since the end of the world since the end of world war ii yeah and that's, that's what's known historically, is that it takes two generations for people to forget the sacrifices that have mm. given us, the freedoms that we have enjoyed mm. up mm. to this point in time. Yeah. My mother always, she believes there should always be a good historian in government, that it's a role, there should be a role within government where you have someone to remind everybody of the history and where we've been. And I think she's probably right. Um, you know, it's interesting. My, my wife has commented about that, and not that she um, actually is, is eager to become president of Ukraine, but she did say it's her belief that every person in uh, a position of power should be required to study history as a requirement of you know, mm. be, being in a position. Mm. We have to work out who tells that history. That's another complicating factor, right? <laughs> it, it is. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's absolutely fa uh, fantastic having you on, and it's such a nice way to end. And I could see people in there saying, oh, it's, you know, we're just going to have to get freedom with boosters, and what's the end? We're going to do this. We're going to do this just like every other time. It, we're, the goodness wins. Human spirit cannot be squashed. So um, we will do this. 
we will get there. But uh, we will see you in another two weeks, Peter. And thank you so much for joining us tonight. And everybody else, thank you so much for joining us tonight. There was, uh, oh, there were 1,500 of you on for quite a long time tonight. And a few people are leaving to hop off to bed tonight. And uh, we will see you. Um, we'll see you soon. So thanks, Peter. We'll see you in thank a couple of weeks. Cool. Yep. All right, everybody. See you later. Bye.